Well, good morning. I tell you what, I love that song, Hymn of Heaven. It reminds us of uh, that there's coming a day when we'll be face to face with the Lord. I, in the last service, I actually looked back and told Felice, hey, take notes. I want that one at my funeral. I, don't, <laughs> I hope that's not happening too soon, but, uh, but uh, I just love, love that song. Let me welcome all of you that are joining us, not just here, but online. Uh, this morning. We are so glad to have you with us. I'm Dave Valoni. I'm the executive pastor here at River Oak for the next 12 hours. Uh, <laughs> this, is, uh, this is my last day officially on the church staff, uh, but they're going to work me to the end, and um, I'm preaching here this morning, and man, I count it a great privilege. Uh, there are so many people that some of you are watching online, some of you are right in here that I need to thank this morning. I'll start with Pastor Heath and the senior staff. Um, It's been so great to partner with each and every one of them in ministry for almost the 10 years uh, that we've been staff. We've been here at church for 14, but um, we've been on staff for for the last 10, and and we're just so thankful. Uh, Staff has grown for, I think there were 14 on staff when I came on, and we're between 42 and 45 um, on a good day now. And, uh, you know, buildings have changed, things have changed. Um, You guys have changed, faces have changed, but... One thing that's always remained constant and I'm incredibly grateful for is the encouragement, the generosity um, that all of you have shown to me and to Fleets and to our families. Um, We have just been, it's been a joy to partner with all of you in ministry, to serve alongside so many of you in so many different ways. The, the, The hundreds of you that have led groups and have done other things with us, man, we just want to say thank you uh, to each and every one of you for just a great, great Experience. Now, we're not leaving the church, as you know, we'll be members and continue to serve, but um, stepping away off the pastoral staff. But there's one person I need to thank this morning, and I, she's usually back there somewhere, but I can't see in the lights right now, and that's my wife, uh, Felice. Uh, this is our 30, can we give her a round of applause for putting up with me for all this time? Um, we, we, uh, we're, we've been married 31 years this week. It was our anniversary. Throw that picture up there. Uh, I throw this picture up here just to remind myself that I was once young. I always want you. Felice doesn't look any different. Does she looks exactly the same, just as beautiful. But she has been my partner in ministry for 31 years, 10 years here. And um, she's really my rock. Um, she is without question um, how we keep going in our family. And so I'm so grateful to her, thankful to her. You know, many of you have gotten the chance to minister with and alongside of her, and she's just a joy to be married to. God has really blessed me. I was reading in my devotions this morning. I'm so, it's the 31st. I was reading Proverbs 31, and um, it says, a, you know, <clears throat> a great wife is one who her husband trusts in her, and I do, and I'm just so thankful for Felice. I, you get a little nostalgic in this moment when you change jobs, you move along. And I was thinking back, put that next picture up there. This picture was taken uh, about um, a couple months after y'all called me to be pastor. Um, Bex, the littlest one there, was in ninth grade at the time. Uh, the middle daughter, Hannah, who's now the mother of our grandchildren, um, hadn't even gone to college yet. Uh, you know, the oldest was just in her freshman year of college. And we're so thankful as a family. Um, this is what we look like now. Next photo. This is just a month ago. Um, uh, we've grown. We've multiplied a little bit, a lot like the church, you know, a few more gray hairs. Um, but we're just so thankful for our two sons-in-law. Um, they're great. And every one of our kids have benefited from the ministry of so many of you at this church. Uh, they've gotten to serve as interns. They've volunteered. They've been ministered to. I was thinking of Chris Newcomb 
Um, my youngest, when he entered the church, was in the fifth grade, and Chris Newcomb was her first life group Sunday school teacher at the time. And she still says the best class she's ever had. And so we're just so grateful um, in so many ways for all of you. When Felice and I came on staff, one of the first verses that I shared with all of our group leaders, and I've shared it multiple times um, in public, was Colossians 1, verses 28 and 29. We took those verses as kind of, really they're Paul's purpose statement, I believe, um, but we took them as verses that we wanted to emulate and follow as we served here on the staff. Colossians 1 says this, verse 28, him we proclaim, speaking of Jesus, Jesus we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works in me. That's been our prayer for the last 10 years, that we would disciple and teach and train and mentor and grow ourselves in our walk with the Lord and then be able to help others in our congregation to do that. But I love that verse because it doesn't say that we do that in our own strength or because of our own intellect or because of our own gifting, our own body. It says, because through him who works powerfully in me, it's through the Lord's strength that through his work that all of that happens. And that's still going to be our prayer as we continue to serve here as lay people at River Oak. That's our prayer. And it should be all of our objective to multiply ourselves in the next generation, to disciple others into a growing relationship with Christ. That's for all of us, whether we're up on this stage as pastors or whether we're in the seats. That's our objective. It's hard though sometimes, isn't it? It's hard when the circumstances of life begin to kind of press in on us. There's loss of a loved one, health concerns, brokenness in our family, our marriage, sin, guilt, shame, stuff at work. And it, as those things begin to press in, it's sometimes difficult to have the spiritual, form, the spiritual maturity or what I call spiritual resilience to continue to serve God wholeheartedly. And I think one of the keys to that is to always remember that we trust a person, not an outcome. We trust a person, not an outcome. That's our main idea that we're going to talk about today. Now, the first time I ever actually heard that phrase used, it was used by a young man. He was uh, a senior in high school. His name was Nate Maywald. Uh, Nate's father was a classmate of mine at West Point. Actually, he was a class behind me. Um, but we then uh, were in Bible study together, and Tom, that's his dad, Tom and I served at the Fort, uh, 10th Mountain Division, uh, the infantry division at Fort Trump, New York, together uh, for a number of years. He was an infantryman, a ranger. Um, I was an artilleryman at the time. And uh, we worked together, trained together. Tom was a great guy. After our time at Drum, we kind of went different ways. He got out of the military, and he was a financial planner down in the Atlanta area, um, and I continued with my career in the Army. But when I was about, I couldn't remember today whether I was 29 or 30 when this happened, um, so he'd be a year behind me, 29 or 30. He called, and he got a conference call of a number of us together um, who had been in ministry together, that had been friends, and he called to tell us that he'd been diagnosed with cancer and that he had about two to three months max to live. We prayed over him. We worked, you know, encouraged him. And I'll never forget 
um, over the coming months, just the miracles that God did in his life. Some of them through, you know, medical things at Duke, some through other things. God did some incredible, incredible miracles um, for the next 15 years or so that he continued to live. One of those miracles was Nate, his son. And I won't get into all that today, but it's a, it's a clear miracle of God that Nate um, was even born. Well, Nate grew up most of his life praying for his dad to get better, seeing things go into remission and get better, and then, you know, kind of go backwards, and they'd have to do this his whole life. But God had always answered the prayers, and they'd always been there for him until the time when Tom finally passed in his early 40s. And Nate struggled. He was in high school. He struggled with that. And I'll never forget, he was giving a speech as he became a senior in high school. He said, the Lord got a hold of my heart as in high school, and he, and he began to do a work in my heart, and he, and he taught me that we don't trust in results. We trust in a person, not an outcome. And you know, that's a lot of what we, we have this tendency, I have this tendency to look for the results. But really, our source of strength, our stability... Our security is found in a person, and that person is Jesus Christ. It's not found in the outcomes. We want to believe that it's all about the blessings of God, and when we see God in his blessings, that's when he's at work. Well, here's the deal. God is always at work. Now, we thank him for his blessings, and we praise him for his blessings, and we sing about his blessings, and we want to be grateful for everything that he's ever done for us. Absolutely. And when we see that, we remember it, and it helps us through the next time. But sometimes the outcomes in this life are not what we're expecting, and we have to remember that we trust a person, not an outcome, just like Nate taught me a few years ago. Well, we're going to look today at some other young men. Some, Old Test, some men from the Old Testament that were all, who had courageous faith, who trusted in a person and not just an outcome. And their names are uh, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Now, some of you may know them better by their Babylonian names, the names that the Babylonians gave these children of Israel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, right? Or if you're like me and you watch a lot of Veggie Tales with your kids, Rack, Shack, and Benny. Okay, so we're going to, if I say Rack, Shack, and Benny today, I'm talking about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These guys had resilient faith. They had spiritual maturity in their life. They trusted in a person and not just in an outcome. So we're going to read about them from Daniel chapter 3. So if you've got your Bibles, uh, turn to Daniel chapter 3, turn your phones on, get over to Daniel chapter 3, and will you stand with me? We're going to start at verse 14 in Daniel chapter 3. Let's stand together and let's read Daniel chapter 3. And I should probably give you some background right before we read this. The children of Israel, particularly the southern kingdom of Israel, had some of the, the kind of the young men have been taken away in about 605 B.C. The Babylonian Empire had come in and they eventually ransacked Jerusalem. Um, but at this time, they've taken away some of the men. Daniel is one of them. We've heard of Daniel. And then Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And through a series of circumstances, these guys actually grow in their authority within the Babylonian Empire. So they've risen in leadership. But King Nebuchadnezzar, he's kind of big on himself. And Nebuchadnezzar decides that he's going to build a 90-foot carved golden image of himself. And when the music plays, everybody's got to bow down to him. 
And he's going to have a great dedication ceremony. Some Bible scholars say that there could have been as many as a million people at this dedication ceremony because he'd called together all of the nations from all of the provinces and all of the leadership was there. So they all come together. And by the way, the last time that the, all the nations came together that we read about was in Genesis chapter 11 before the flood at the Tower of Babel when the nations came together to, to, de to declare their independence from God. Well, Nebuchadnezzar's doing something similar, only he's not declaring independence from God. He's saying, you're going to worship me. I am now the king. We are going to unify you all and gather you all around me. And we come to Daniel chapter 3, verse 14. It says this, Nebuchadnezzar answered and said to them, is it true, O Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the golden image that I've set up? Now, if you are ready, when you hear the sound of the horn, the pipe, the lyre, the trigon, the harp, and the bagpipe, and every kind of music, to fall down and worship the image that I've made, well and good. Hey, I like you guys. You guys have been all right. You've been good leaders in the kingdom. I'll give you a chance. If you bow down, next time the music plays, you'll be all right. Then he says, but if you do not worship, you shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. And who is the God that will deliver you out of my hands? How arrogant is that? He says, and who's the God that will deliver you out of my hands? I mean, I'm the divine authority right now. I'm the king of the world. I'm the leader of Babylon. Who's the God that could do that? Verse 16, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace. And he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. And these are the key words for today, really kind of the sermon title. But if not. He's gonna, we believe he's going to deliver us. We expect he's going to deliver us. But I'll tell you what, king, but if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you've set up. We would rather go in the fire with God than spend another day in Babylon with you. Let's pray together. Father God, I pray that you will just work in our hearts this morning. God, that you will use these passages to encourage our hearts, to strengthen our hearts, and to bring us back to the fact that the rescue is found in you. Lord, I pray that you will, your Holy Spirit will be living and active in my words and the words of everyone here, we have, and <clears throat> thoughts and minds of everyone here, Lord, that you will change our hearts and our lives today in your name. Amen. You may be seated. You may be seated. You know, the first question that comes to my mind, and I know it comes to a lot of people's minds when they read this passage is, so where was Daniel? You remember Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were, were the young men that were all there. Well, we don't know exactly. Bible scholars have hazarded some guesses, some different guesses. One thing we do know from Daniel chapter 2 is that Daniel has already been appointed to the king's court. And so it's possible that Daniel's out on travel, honestly. I mean, he could be uh, traveling the kingdom on behalf of the king. Um, he also, as a member of the king's court, he would have been up front so there's some possibility that perhaps Daniel was exempt from bowing down in this moment or something along those lines. I, we don't know, but we know where Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were at, and we know what Rack, Shack, and Benny did, and that they said, we will not bow down. It's important to kind of probably point out here 
that Nebuchadnezzar had already acknowledged that God had worked in the lives of these guys. Um, so you go into Daniel chapter 1 and 2, he'd already knew that God had done some amazing works in, in strengthening them and bringing them into leadership. Nebuchadnezzar had acknowledged their God. So it's not that they believed in God that was the problem. It's that they wouldn't also bow down to him as a divine authority. I think that sounds a lot like things today. You know, in the world that we live in today, our Babylon, you know, an awful lot of folks would say, it's fine that you believe in Jesus. But what gets us in trouble is when we say, and Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, and no man comes to the Father but by him. You see, we have to hold to our core beliefs. And one of our core beliefs is that there is only one God, and there is only way, one way, and that way is found in Jesus Christ. He's the rescue, amen? That's it. Remember a couple weeks ago I preached and I shared that Moses, over a thousand years before this, had taught the children of Israel, hey, here's some things that you need to pass along to your children, right? You need to pass along to your children that there is a God, that there is only one God, that that God is the Lord, and that the Lord shall be your God. Well, guess what? Rakshak and Benny got the message, all right? They had been taught, and they knew that there is only one God, and they were going to stand up for him. And what happens to us oftentimes is we begin to think, well, you know, I can bow down to some of these other things. I'll kind of manipulate God's word and objective truth a little bit so that I can bow down when I need to. And then, and then you know, but I still believe in Jesus. You see, if we're going to follow him completely, we trust his word, we follow his word, and we stay focused on his word, not our beliefs about what's right in the world, not what we think's going on, not what some political leader tells us, just what God tells us, just the truth of the gospel. We stay focused on that. And so I think there's some things to be learned here, but let me, I do want to say this before I go any further. The hero of this story is not, the heroes are not Rack, Shack, and Benny. The heroes of this story is is God. It's Jesus Christ. The hero of the Old Testament, the Old Testament always points us to Christ. It always brings us to a point of faith. Yes, we can learn from some of the examples of these guys. We can look at their courageous and resilient faith, but it's always the hero of the story is to God. And so we honor and we glorify him, and that's who we need to look at today. Because Rakshak and Benny stood when everybody else bowed, they ended up in the fiery furnace. But then, because Nebuchadnezzar brought everybody together, God's power is on display. Now, I don't always do this, read a longer passage of Scripture, but we're going to walk through this because I can't say it any better than Scripture does here at the end of Daniel chapter 3. So we're going to walk through the rest of the story. And I hope that this is a great encouragement to you today. I hope that there's great hope in this. I hope that this builds your faith where you can trust the Lord no matter what it is that you're going through. Because the message is that there's another in the fire, right? The message is that God is present in any points of distress and turmoil that we're going through in our lives. Let's pick it up at verse 19. It says, then Nebuchadnezzar was filled with fury and the expression of his face was changed against Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He ordered the furnace heated seven times more than it was usually heated. And he ordered some of the mighty men of his army to bind Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and to cast them into the burning fiery furnace. 
Then these men were bound in their cloaks, their tunics, their hats, and their other garments, and they were thrown into the burning fiery furnace. Because the king's order was urgent and the furnace overheated, the flame of the fire killed those men who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. It was so hot that the military guys that had bound them and were throwing them in burned in the fire. I love the fact that the dedication, everybody who was there factually saw that the fire was real, that even these guys died as a result of what was going on before these guys ever get, before Rakshak and Benny are thrown in. Verse 24, then King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished and he rose up in haste. He declared to his counselors, did we not cast three men bound into the fire? They answered and said to the king, true, O king. He said, but I see four men unbound, walking in the midst of the fire, and they are not hurt, and the appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods. God was present. God was there. Now, Bible scholars differ on exactly what's happening here. I believe it's a Christophany, which means that it's a physical appearance of Jesus Christ, pre-incarnate Christ, before um, he comes in Bethlehem, to, to this earth in Bethlehem. But it would not be inconsistent to think that this is an angel of God that is put into this place at this moment in time. Either way, what it demonstrates is that God is with them. They went into the fire. They believed that God would be with them, and God was there, and their rescue comes through him. Verse 26. Then Nebuchadnezzar came near the door of the burning, fiery furnace. He declared Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God. That's a little change of tune, <laughs> right? Servants of the Most High God. Yeah, I want you to worship me, but yeah, no, no, maybe I got it wrong, right? Turns the most high God. Come out and come here. Then Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out from the fire. And the satraps and the prefects and the governors and the king's counselors gathered together and saw that the fire had not had any power over the bodies of those men. The, I love the specificity of this. The hair of their heads was not singed. Their cloaks. Remember, why did he mention that they were in their cloaks and their clothes and all that? Because they would burn up quickly if you throw them in the fire but, and maybe even hurt them more in that moment. But it says here, their cloaks were not harmed and no smell of fire had come upon them. They didn't even smell like smoke. It's unbelievable, the specificity of this story, how God intervened. But you know what God did do? You know what he did burn? Their binds. Remember it said they were tied up and bound. So the fire was very real. It loosed them. The fire burned the bounds, but didn't touch them to the point where they didn't even smell like smoke. Verse 28, Nebuchadnezzar answered and said, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and delivered his servants, who trusted in him and set aside the king's commands and yielded up their bodies rather than serve and worship any god except their own god. I've heard... It, it phrased this way by some other pastors, most recently uh, J.D. Greer, but this way. We must believe that God can, expect that he will, but trust him even if he doesn't. They believed that God could. They expected that he would, but they trusted him either way. In chapter 3, verse 17, these were their words before they went into the fiery furnace. Our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the fiery furnace. 
God is bigger than our problems, folks. He's bigger than cancer. He's bigger than the broken marriages. He's bigger than the problems that we're having at work. He's bigger than the problems that we're having, relationships that we're having in the neighborhood. God is bigger. And we can believe that. Nothing that happens to us happens without his permission because he's sovereign. And we can believe that he can. But they also expected that he would. I, I love this. It says in verse 17, the end of verse 17, chapter 3, it says, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. How did they know that? The truth is they didn't. He will deliver us out of your hand. They didn't. They trusted God in that moment. Now, they had an expectant faith. They had a faith in a God who they'd seen fulfill promises before. They were able to look back and see how God had worked in their life, and they believed that he would intervene. They knew the promises of God. They had been taught and trained in things like Isaiah, right? In Isaiah chapter 43, verse 2, this is a promise that I believe um, that they would have known or been taught at some point in their upbringing. Isaiah 43, in verse 2, it says this, a promise to Israel from, by God, when you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. And when you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned, and the flame shall not consume you. I, I just believe that they trusted in the promises of God, and they expected him to do a great miracle. But then maybe the most important point of the morning is the next phrase where they said, but if not. But if not, we'll still do what's right. We'll still trust God. But if not, God might let us die in the furnace, Nebuchadnezzar, but we'd rather die in the flames with him than spend another day in the palace with you. We would rather die in the flames with him than spend another day in Babylon trying to live in this world for this world's values and everything that's going on here. We would rather be with God. We would rather live for God. We would rather do what's right. We would rather stand for truth because he will be with us. Amen? In the fire, through the waters, no matter where we go, he will be with us. They believed that God was able to protect them, and they believed that knowing him was better than any of the alternatives, even if that alternative meant death, because they would escape from the king in that way, and they'd be in the presence of their heavenly father. They knew that it was better. They trusted in him. Listen, we've got to decide, decide. If God leads us through the fire, is he going to be enough? I'm here to tell you that the scripture teaches us and the promises of God teach us and our experience teaches us that, yes, he will be enough. I think it's an incredibly encouraging message, but what I'd like to do as we kind of um, move through the rest of it is try to get a little bit more um, practical so that we can apply this. Because I believe most of us would love to say, those of you at home, those of you in the room, we'd all love to say, I believe that God can. I expect that he will. And I'll trust him if he, if, even if he doesn't. We won't want to say that. But do we have the spiritual resiliency to really live that out? Why made these young men able to do that? I believe there's two things that they, that they had developed in their heart and in their life that gave them that resiliency. They feared God and they knew God. When we talk about fearing God, um, one of the kind of definitions we sometimes talk about fearing God, it means reverential awe. 
They stood in awe of God. They honored him for his might. They honored him for his power, for his purity, for his sovereignty. They honored him and they drew close to him with their lives. But I'll tell you a real practical way of thinking about fearing God that I like to share. Fearing God is living like God actually is God. <laughs> and that he's in the room with you, which he is. Fearing God is living as if God is actually God. These guys believed that God was who he says he is. They believed that he was in the room with them. They believed and trusted that he had their back no matter what, even when the chips were down. That's what fearing God means. They also knew God. Knowing God doesn't mean knowing about God. It doesn't mean that I show up on Sunday morning and just learn some more information, like some really cool stuff like, oh, the bind, the bounds were, their bindings were burned, but they didn't smell like smoke. I think that's a kind of a cool fact. I'm glad I learned it. Glad I was able to share it with you guys. But the fact is, that's going to take me nowhere. It's just information. It's got to be about transformation in our hearts and our lives. Knowing God is when we are transformed in our hearts and our lives. And they had a personal relationship with this God. Remember he said, our God, he was their God. They trusted him alone for their rescue. They recognized his voice. They could discern his will. They understood his ways. They were fully assured of his character. They knew God. So how do we get there? How do we develop the fear of God and the knowledge of God in our lives? Well, the book of, in the book of Proverbs, King Solomon shares a lot about what it means to fear God and what it means to know God. And I was about six weeks ago, I knew I was going to preach today, and I was thinking about what I wanted to share. And, and I was reading on, in Proverbs chapter 2, and I came across these verses, and the Lord just did a work in my heart. And I want to share these verses with you because I think this is the practical application side of the message for today, of how we get to the point where we can trust in a person and not outcomes in our lives. In Proverbs chapter 2, verse, verses 1 to 5, it taught, there's an if-then statement. In the book of Proverbs, there's lots of if-then statements. And by the way, I believe that King Solomon was known at the time of Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego to be the wisest man to ever live, and I think they probably had read some of the works of him too. So I think these if-then statements in Proverbs were things that they lived by and they would have even known. And this is what it says in Proverbs 2, 1. It says, my son, if you receive my words and treasure up my commandments with you, making your ear attentive to wisdom and inclining your heart to understanding. Yes, if you call out for insight and raise your voice for understanding. And if you seek it like silver and search for it as hidden treasure, then you will understand the fear of the Lord and find the knowledge of God. How do we understand the fear of the Lord and find the knowledge of God? How do we develop spiritual resilience in our life? We follow all of the if statements. Listen, we surrender our lives. We trust completely in the Lord. But there are spiritual principles that we, of sowing and reaping that are true throughout all of Scripture. There are if-then statements that develop the resiliency in our lives so that we can develop the bold faith, so that we can stand in, a, in Babylon, which is what we live in today, so that we can stand for truth. And what are those ifs? The first one right there is we receive God's word. In chapter 2, verse 1, it says, Receive my words and treasure my commandments with you. My wife says, Dave, you're just a broken record. You've been saying the same thing for 10 years. Maybe that's true. We have got to spend time in God's word, folks. 
Not just listening to other people talk about God's Word, although that's a good thing. I believe we have to hear God's Word. I believe we have to read God's Word. I believe we have to meditate in God's Word. We have to study God's Word, and, we, and then we memorize God's Word. We do all of those things. We, God's Word has to become part and parcel of who we are. It's got to be the most important things in our lives. That's what receiving His Word means. We've got to be in God's Word. That's how we know objective truth. That's how we know what the instructions are. And that's how we develop spiritual resilience. Receive God's word. In verse 2, it talks about refocusing our affections and our attention. We refocus our attention and our affections. It says making your ear attentive to wisdom and inclining your heart to understanding. It's not just information, as I said before. It's transformation. Our full attention. Our whole hearts. Our language is not just language of of the intellect. It's not just things that we learn. It's our hearts. Our whole hearts become committed to the truth of Scripture. Our whole hearts are lived for God. Our whole hearts um, living for the Lord is what allows us to act like Rackshack and Benny and say, no, I'm not living for you. I'm not going to compromise my standards. I know that there's only one true God, and I'm going to stand for the gospel and for Jesus Christ because that is truth. It's got to become a heart language for us. We've got to refocus our attention and our affections. And then we reorder our priorities. We order our priorities. It's actually, the verses of chapter 3 says, Call out for insight, raise your voice for understanding. Seek it like silver, search for it as hidden treasures. We seek and we search like it's treasure. Practically, how do we do that? We spend time with God every day in his word and prayer. All of us as individuals, that's what we're called to. We make disciples who make disciples who make disciples. We share what God has taught us with the next generation and teach and train them how to do the same. We're all called to that. We get involved in life groups here at our church because then we partner with other believers who are trying to do the same thing. They hold us accountable. We hold them accountable. And we gather together around God's word, hold, locking arms together and standing for truth and sharing the truth of the gospel. And when they're going through hard times, we lift them up and say, we trust a person. We trust a person. We serve together. It's simple stuff. I might sound like a broken record, but it's the same things we've been saying. Time in God's word. Time in prayer. We serve our Savior. Listen, we receive his word. We refocus our affections, our attention, and we reorder our priorities. And if we do that, then we'll understand the fear of God and the knowledge of God. And if we fear God and we know God, then we will have the resiliency to stand and know the truth. And that truth, which is true, that God will be with us in our distress, that God is always with us in the fire, that he'll be with us in the water, that we can trust him, becomes real to us because we're spending time with him. God is bigger than our problems. That's why we've got to believe that he can and expect that he will, because he's bigger than our problems. But he's also better than any alternative, even if that alternative means death. We would rather, if we truly know the goodness of God, the grace of God, the blessings of God, the forgiveness of God, the love of God, we'd rather go with him into the fire spend one more day in the palace just like Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego 
We're gonna do something today. We're gonna we're gonna sing, and I I, don't, I want us to stay in this moment, corporately in this moment, because I believe there's some of us that need to grab a hold of these truths today, and I think this song is gonna help us do it. And some of us say, "Man, I don't know that person, Jesus. I don't know him." I need to trust him with my life. I I want to know him. I want to have that security and stability and and sureness in my heart, in my life, that strength. And at the end of this song, when the song's over, we're going to have a spiritual response team right over here. My left, your right. We would love nothing better than to introduce you to the Savior who can save us from our sins and give us hope from our brokenness and share what it means to you that God is gracious and he's good. Let's pray together. Father God, as we sing, Lord, I pray that your goodness and your grace and your forgiveness will become so real in our lives. Lord, help us to think back about the promises that you fulfilled from Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Help us to look at their courage and their resiliency and recognize that you're the hero of the story, that you can rescue us, and you will always be with us, and you are there for us. God, I pray your Holy Spirit will be with us in this moment. We all stand with me. Let's stand together. Let's sing these words together. Listen to these verses one more time from Isaiah 43. It says, when you pass through the waters, I'll be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. And when you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned, and the flame shall not consume you. Our God is with us in the fire. Our God is with us in our times of distress. Our God is with us in the problems of life. Our God is with us in every challenge that we have to face this week. We trust a person, not an outcome. Let's sing together.